Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Paddock Pass podcast. My name is Neil Morrison and I'm delighted to say I'm joined by David Emmett of motomatters.com and Steve English, World Superbike Commentator, uh, to discuss some of the uh, post-season testing that has been going on in Spain since the close of the season. Now, uh, David and Steve both uh, are recently returned from an exhaustive uh, tour of Spain. Uh, how many days were you guys in Valencia and then how many days were you down in Jerez, guys? It was a uh, about a week in either location uh well i was uh i was there for less time than steve because steve managed to stay on for a little bit but uh, basically we got there i think the wednesday before valencia uh, we were at valencia for the race and then the test and then the thursday we drove down to jerez and then we were there for the moto 2 slash moto e test and then the world superbike test and then the moto gp test and then it was friday and then on friday i lay down and uh, uh died for most of the day and steve went and took pictures of ducatis and then i came home and it was great how about you steve well, I just came home, and that's great. But uh, yeah, it was a it was a good three weeks down in Spain, just shy of three weeks down in Spain, and pretty much every day was filled with on track action at either Jerez or Valencia. So you're not going to find me complaining too much about seeing motorbikes out on track. <laughs> no, exactly. I mean, you even went for the bonus motorbikes for the uh, uh, the Panigale launch, didn't you? Yeah, I went down just to see uh, Scott Redding and Josh Brooks get their first test on the V4 RS as well. So their first taste of what they'll ride in BSB this year. So that was actually quite an interesting day just to see them adapt to that bike and also to see that bike with all the electronic aids turned off and to see how Scott Redding was getting on with the Pirelli tires and how the team were adjusting to a brand new bike. So that was quite an interesting test just from an information perspective as much as anything else. And I have to say, like looking at Reading during the test, he looked fast, he looked consistent, he looked pretty comfortable on the bike straight away. So that's very promising for the BSB season. And you'd imagine there'll be a lot of crossover fans now to BSB for next year. Yeah, you would definitely say so. Um, so lots to discuss, guys. We've had MotoGP, Moto2, Moto E, World Superbike, and a little bit of BSP as well. So uh, we're really coming at you from all angles in this uh, latest episode of the Paddock Pass podcast. Now, let's start first and foremost with uh, MotoGP. We've had two tests since I think we last came to you uh, through your airwaves. And, uh, well, some interesting results, both at Valencia and also at Jerez. Uh, we saw Maverick Vinales top the timesheets at Valencia. Taka Nakagami uh, surprising everyone, I think, with uh, some really strong and consistent joints at Jerez. Um, what can we take away from the test? What was the principal thing you would take away from both of those tests, David? Uh, well, I mean, uh, for me, the, the most interesting thing about these two tests is these are now the official MotoGP engine tests. Um, they are two cold and tight tracks where engine character is really, really important. Um, and if you get your engine wrong, as we've seen with Yamaha, as we've seen with Suzuki, um, uh, you know, you're, you're stuck. You're stuck with a, uh, with, within well, a poorly performing engine for an entire season. And it makes it very, very difficult to actually do something. So we saw an awful lot of, um, people testing new engines, trying to make sure that they've, uh, that they've got it right for, uh, for next season. Okay. Steve, what about yourself? Well, the biggest thing for me was just to see the contrast between riders on the same bikes for the feedback that they were given. As David said, this is pretty much just a test to find your engines for next year. We saw Yamaha come out with two different engines for the Valencia and the Jerez test. So there was two specs for the riders to check. And they came to a pretty much a uniform agreement on which engine was the best. 
but the reasons why the engine was the one to choose seemed to differ quite a bit between Rossi and Vinales at Yamaha and then also whenever you look at some of the other manufacturers there was a little bit of uncertainty as to which way to go but probably the biggest takeaway for me was Ducati finished last year with the best bike on the grid and they were the manufacturer that brought the biggest raft of upgrades to check and to test during the Jerez test in particular. So that was quite interesting just to see that Gigi Delinia isn't uh, resting on his laurels and he's really being aggressive and trying to make sure that next year's Ducati is just as good as this year's. Yeah, for sure. At least the uh, updates that were visible to us, uh, both with a kind of revised seat unit and uh, also some interesting experimentation with uh, the rear brake. But I guess we'll come on to that in a little bit because you mentioned Yamaha there, Stephen, and I guess we'll start with them because um, I can't think of another manufacturer where both riders, uh, both the factory riders, were saying quite contrasting things just for a change. Uh, Vinales and Rossi coming out with uh, different uh, sides of the argument. Um, no, we're going to just uh, cut in a little uh, segment of uh, both of Vinales and Rossi's takeaways from the final day at Jerez. And uh, we'll be back with uh, our take on what they were saying after this. No, because we show, we prove, and I think it's the bike to be competitive and the bike to win the title. So uh, I felt really good. Jerez is not my best track. Uh, I know. So being competitive in the lap times, normally I just lose two, three tenths when was 30 laps on the tire. So... That is really important and is the most important. Now, let's see. I give my best. I think we've been very competitive in Valencia and here. And yeah, it was very important to be here and not in, in Malaysia because finally in Malaysia, you have an engine with top speed due to the lap time, but it's only one track like Malaysia or Mugello. Then other tracks you have to cornering a lot like, like here. So it's going to be very important decision right now and to see if we can improve especially the grip. For me, it's very important to improve the grip. So the, the summary is for this test that you've fixed corner entry, now yes. you need to fix corner exit. Yes, exactly. I, I fixed a lot corner entry. I felt really good with the bike. For sure we can improve because finally we just jumped from one bike to another bike. All the time like this, so I didn't touch nothing from Valencia. It's exactly the same setup and you can see this totally different track. So we needed something different. But actually I felt really good already when, when I jumped on the bike from the first day. Riding on 39 low, that I think is the race pace, so it was good. Yeah, um, so more or less, for me, Yamaha have to be clear that uh, it's not enough. So for me, if we race tomorrow, we are fifth, six, uh, seven, uh, maybe four if one crash in front, uh, but um, we don't fight for the victory. So, so racing, sorry. Must make you pretty angry because we had the same conversation a year ago. Yeah, angry. <laughs> it's like this. <laughs> so, Okay, so as you can hear, uh, slightly mixed messages coming from the movie star Yamaha camp. Uh, Vinales, interestingly, saying that he can possibly win the world championship with this bike, but that contrasted with uh, his elder, more experienced teammate. What was your take on movie star Yamaha at these tests, David? Really, it's a team at war. Um, it seems to me that uh, they have fixed the engine because uh, what they were, um, specifically what uh, Vinales was saying, was that the um, the engine braking is better. And uh, the, their biggest problem last year was, uh, obviously, the, the, the engine was too aggressive, uh, which they tried to fix with uh, with the electronics, but, really, but, but couldn't really. The fact that he's saying that the engine braking is better suggests me um, that they've got a slightly heavier uh, crankshaft which means it just makes the braking a little bit smoother uh, which should also calm the engine down in acceleration as well the problem is that 
uh, what they're lacking is what uh, Vinyals uh, also said, which is mechanical drive, which is or mechanical grip, which is drive out corners, and uh, that means that they're burning up their tire after you know like five, six, seven laps, um, and they're not going to be as good in the uh, uh, in the second half of the race. Although, uh, again, I haven't still haven't looked at, uh, in great depth at the times yet. Uh, something that's a project for me to do over the next uh, few weeks. Uh, but Vinales seemed to think that his times, you know, weren't suffering on old tyres, whereas Rossi was, you know, basically we've got too much of drop after old uh, after the first few races, and then we're, we're we're in real trouble. And there seems to be just sort of a split in uh, their both their view of the bikes and also. Uh, I don't know. There seems to be something going on in the team, but then it's been going on in the team for all year, really. Yeah, and all of last year, I guess, as well. If you look all the way back to 2017, both guys uh, were saying very different things about the chassis and which direction they felt development should be going in back then. Steve, what did you make of it? As David said, the team at war really is becoming more and more apparent with each passing winter. Vinales was talking during the test about how, you know, in the past, he hasn't been able to be fast in winter tests and that this was the first time where he felt he really made a big step forward. But if you think back to 2016, he topped pretty much every day of testing, just with the low track temperatures that this suited his style wherever we went. So for Vinales, I think right now he's just out on a, a mission. It's almost like he's a politician now trying to get election. He's out just trying to tell the team, listen to me, take my feedback. And what's interesting for me is with Lorenzo going to Honda for this year, all we're hearing about is comparisons between Lorenzo and Marquez to Senna and Prost, but arguably the biggest comparison you can make between Senna and Prost in Formula 1 is actually at uh, Yamaha, just because you've got two riders that want very different things from a bike, and both of them trying to get the technical team on side with them. For Vinales, he wants to make sure that the engine has a lot of engine braking. As David said, he wants a bike that he can pick up out of the corners and really drive through the corner. Rossi seems to be a lot more adaptable with what he can do with the Yamaha. But it's interesting to see Vinales come out and say straight away, like, I can win with this bike as it is right now. Rossi's coming out and saying, I could finish fourth with this bike, maybe if we had a retirement or two in front of us. So he's not mincing his words. He really wants to see a lot of drastic change. And Rossi looking specifically at electronics and different areas that he feels could make that step forward. But it's going to be interesting to see who wins that tug of war because in the past we heard... Vignal is really positive about winter testing pace, but it didn't pay out during the race weekends. Rossi, on the other hand, was a lot more, with what turned out to be a lot more realistic about the pace during the winter, and that turned out to be the case, what we saw throughout the course of the year. But what's interesting is, Jerez, with low track temperatures, it's very similar to a lot of circuits where Yamaha are already fast. This isn't giving us an accurate portrayal of just where Yamaha are at. We won't get that until the Sepang tests. And as we've seen in the past, that's too late to make changes. Yeah, well, the, the other thing is that previously Yamaha have uh, gone untested at Sepang, and Sepang is uh, it's not really a good place to be testing engines because uh, it's hot, and so that saps horsepower. It, uh, if you've got an aggressive engine, it takes the edge off of it. It's a big, wide, fast track, and so... Um, uh, you know, you can actually use the horsepower, which is uh, which is there. There aren't very many places where you're really um, accelerating hard out of a very tight corner with a with with a lot of throttle. Um, so uh, yeah, it can give you a false a false image of what's going on, and I think that that is that's what's happened in the past. Um, I think that's why Jerez is a little bit better for Yamaha's engine development, anyway. Yeah, and also the fact that all the other guys are there. 
uh, because in the past it was just Yamaha testing at Sepang by themselves and they had no reference to what uh, the other guys would have been doing in those exact conditions. Dave, you were talking earlier about like the amount of laps that are done through the course of the week in testing. I saw on Crash.net, Peter McLaren actually did up a list of like who's had the fast laps through the course of the test. And it was interesting that in front of Vinales and Rossi, there was Jack Miller, Davi and Petrucci all showing that the Ducati clearly still had that edge last week in testing. And Rossi and Vinales were quite far down the list in terms of who was able to set the most number of fast laps through the week. So it's quite clear that maybe the Ducatis obviously have a more sorted bike. We saw that through the course of the year. But, uh, you know, Yamaha still clearly have a lot of work to do, especially whenever Vinales was talking so much about how good his bike was on a used tyre. Neil, I know that you were able to get down to some of Vinales' debriefs to hear him talk about, you know, even on a 20-lap old tyre, he was still able to have good pace. But it's all about being able to manage that when the track temperature is 50 degrees at Hareth, not when it's 20 degrees. Yeah. I mean, should we maybe look, take a different view of this and think that maybe Vinales is worth commending? Because all year there's been this cloud over him about not having, well, having a bit of a fractious relationship with Ramon Forcada. He's obviously made some internal changes. He has one or two new people um, that are accompanying him to tracks now. Um, it's not just his, uh, his old friend, uh, Alex Salas, who has kind of been with him since uh, since childhood. Um, maybe he's just trying, trying to sweet talk the Yamaha engineers or trying to commend them for, for the changes they've done. I mean, this engine that they were trying is an improvement. It's maybe not as much of an improvement as Rossi had hoped for, um, but it's still an improvement nonetheless. Um, is this just a possibly a change of tack of, from Vinales that we should that we should appreciate? I think it is uh, um, well a change of tactic. Perhaps he's certainly been extremely critical in the past. Um, uh, I suppose you know it's a carrot and a stick thing. He's uh, he's he used the stick quite a lot in the past. Now he's uh, throwing out a few carrots. Um, uh, but yeah, I think he's also having to learn how to play politics. And as a, I mean, you know, he's a young man uh, in a uh, in a team which has been built around Valentino Rossi, and Valentino Rossi is uh, someone who understands politics at a very deep level. He's also much much older, has much more much more experience. Um, so yeah, I think it's uh, that as we said, it's a power struggle, and that means there's lots and lots of things sort of going on here the one thing is that as you get older and you get more experienced you realize the things that you need to have around you and clearly the relationship between Fercato and Vinales wasn't working that's normal crew chiefs don't always work with riders riders are paid a lot more money to win so a crew chief is dispensable but the key thing for Vinales is he engineered that change of crew chief so he now needs to make sure it works so he's invested in making sure that his crew chief is able to be a success and therefore, over the course of these tests, the first test that he works with them, he wants to be able to say to the world, you know what, this was the right decision because a happy rider is a fast rider. And if he's happy and you know is able to say all the right things about his new relationships within the team, maybe it carries forward into Qatar. Maybe it doesn't, but he's got more chance of it carrying forward into Qatar if he leaves this week feeling positive. I think that's a fair comment. I think that's absolutely um, uh, uh, and a very good point. The, the, the that whole sort of you know crew chief thing is a little bit of sort of relationship uh, black magic anyway. And uh, when you push so hard for a particular change, then yeah, you're absolutely right. It's really important to that that this change works out for Vinales. Yeah, the change of number, obviously, that's something he wants that to signal a new beginning. And uh, certainly, I think in his dealings with us, anyway. Um, I noticed 
basically from Thailand, uh, a more courteous Vinales that is willing to sit and explain exactly how he feels, that details his answer, or that gives answers with a great more, uh, with a lot more detail, sorry, um, as opposed to the maybe petulant, uh, mardy, moody guy that we saw for the most part in uh, 2017 and 18. Um, so it, it's clear that he's trying to He's trying to change the way he behaves. And it was interesting at Valencia. He said one of the things he's learned or is still learning um, from his time with Yamaha is, is the kind of the, the human relationships. And he admitted that that wasn't maybe his uh, his forte in the past. That's something he's working on now. So again, it could be just a way of trying to get everyone on side, build this team around him. Because, um, I mean, it was blatantly apparent through most of this year that, uh, well, he just seemed a bit detached from the, the whole Yamaha organization. You can learn from Rossi. Rossi isn't the fastest rider in the world anymore. He's consistent, but he's not hes not a Mark Marquez any longer. But the one thing that he's always been good at, even whenever he was just coming up through 125s, 250s, his early years and 500s, was finding a way for a team just to gravitate around him. And that really has always been his strength. Maybe the one thing that Vinales learns from Rossi isn't anything about technical or riding styles or anything like that. It's just about being able to get a team around him. And if you think back to Marquez, whenever he first came into MotoGP, he had to make those changes as well. He, he had Gabarini as his crew chief the first year, but immediately he had made his decision that he was going to bring Santi Hernandez in for year two. And obviously Marquez has been able to make it work. Now Vinales has to make it work as well with his crew chief from the lower classes. I was just going to agree with Steve. I mean, that's a, that's exactly it. I mean, Vinales is a quite a... Uh, well, but peculiar personality. He's a very, he's a very odd personality in the sense that um, he's very f- focused, very driven. Uh, he's not at all social um, uh, in the sort of traditional sense. He's immensely ambitious, as as um, Neil was saying. We we almost used to draw straws as to who got to go to um, a Maverick Vinales debrief during the uh, during the season because. Uh, he was so, you know, you want to be taking away his belt and his laces uh, at some uh, at some point. But that's, I think, is you know, that, that's one of the things which you have to learn as a as a racer that it's not just you going fast on a motorbike; it's you and your team putting something together which is uh, w- with which you can be successful. And that takes um, uh, real uh, sort of uh, yeah human human skills, in, interpersonal skills, which. You know, it's, uh, it appears that Vinales it struggles with sometimes. For sure. Well, I guess uh, it is important to point out that uh, there were several other factories present at both of the tests, and we're going to go down uh, through those factories and decide who seems to be in good shape going into the winter break and who doesn't. Um, now, I think Yamaha is somewhere in the middle. Uh, depends on which rider you uh, want to believe. <laughs> uh, but looking at the riders, sorry, looking at the factories that or in good shape, you'd have to say that Ducati comes away from uh, Jerez, uh, probably maybe just a little bit ahead of the other guys. Uh, you would have to say that Ducati looked best. I mean, Jack Miller was absolutely delighted when he got off of the um, uh, when he got off the the, the GP19 at Valencia. Um, it said it was a fantastic bike. It w- went round corners, uh, had no problems actually uh, getting the bike to turn, which was a big uh, a big deal. Obviously, also. Uh, Miller had been riding the GP17, so the step from the GP17 to the GP19 was much bigger. 
Uh, but Dovizioso also said the bike turns a little bit better. Um, that was the big weakness of the bike. Uh, the bike is clearly, you know, just in terms of top speed, it was the fastest. Um, they didn't really necessarily have a big engine upgrade because there's nothing really much wrong with their engine. They have the best mechanic. If you ask any of the other riders, they'll say, you know, the Ducat has the best mechanical grip um, at the, and the best drive out of corners. Um, yeah, I mean, they were already in quite a strong position anyway. And now if this bike really does go around corners uh, the way that we the, the, the way that we suspect it might, then it, it should be in, in really good shape. The fact that they were so strong at uh, Valencia the fact that they were so strong at Phillip Island, um, that was um, uh, yeah, that was a bit. That was a big deal. That was a, a sign that this bike really is fast. And again, for uh, the Ducasses to be so fast at Jerez, a track which they have historically struggled at, um, again, it's a really, really good sign that this bike is in good shape. One of the key things from this week as well is if you look at Jerez this week in particular, it was a very narrow line that you could actually ride. When you talk to the riders, they said turn one, turn two, turn six, turn eight. I think turn 10 as well were all really cutting open with the asphalt. So it was really difficult to be able to put your bike exactly where you needed it to be because the curbs didn't have the high grip paint either. The white line didn't have the high grip paint. So you had a very narrow line of only a couple of inches in some corners where if you were off that line slightly, you were onto a very rough piece of asphalt so there was no grip on it. Miller said that just holding in those tight lines, for a rider like him in particular, he's always a little bit wilder than other riders, just adapting on the fly, probably just coming from his dirt track background, but always adapting and being a little bit looser than other riders, but he was able to hold tight lines through corners and still set fast lap times. So that's a really good indication of just how easy that bike is to manage. The rider's really able to just put a lot of faith that it's going to turn, whereas that's always been the problem for the Ducatis over the last few years. It's gotten better incrementally each year. But as you said, David, the jump from the 17th to the 19th clearly left Miller thinking, oh, wow, if I had had the 18, maybe it would have been able to have a bit more consistency in 2018. But he's clearly happy with the GP19 for next year. He finished up early on Friday, even on the, or sorry, on Thursday. After the first day, he said he was only going to run until two or three o'clock on the second day. That's how much confidence he had in the steps that they were making. Every time he went out, he went faster and faster. So he clearly feels quite at ease with that GP19. And he knows it's a big year for him. This is the opportunity to have the exact same spec as the other Ducati riders and to be able to show what he can do. What was quite interesting, though, through the course of the two-day test was I think Petrucci did more 1 minute 38s than any other rider out there so clearly able to adapt quite quickly to the factory Ducati team clearly able to use that GP19 straight off the bat as well. Yes what did you make uh, we saw a host of uh, interesting innovations uh, visible on uh, the GP19s uh, Alvaro Bautista was uh, standing in for Michele Piero as a test rider at Jerez and we saw on his bike, we saw Petrucci's bike and Miller's bike fitted with some uh, pretty interesting looking updates. David, what did you think? First of all, shall we say the aerodynamic tail? Um, very interesting. I'm not entirely clear what the point of it is because also it's uh, uh, the location of it. It shouldn't get an awful lot of air anyway, uh, because the rider, you know, basically the rider's in the way. But it must have some effect. And you know, the Pandora's box has been opened with uh, aerodynamics. Basically, uh, once uh, Gigi Delinia de figured out that um, the spec electronics meant that um, uh, they wouldn't be able to do. 
anti-wheelie the way that they wanted to. They started fiddling around with wings, and and so we've ended up in this place uh, with uh, sort of all sorts of aerodynamic appendages appearing everywhere. Um, uh, this is a further refinement more than anything, uh, I think. Um, the riders, um, I think Petrucci said, it didn't really feel very much difference with it. Didn't make a, didn't make a, a great deal of difference. Um, so, uh, yeah, like I said, I think it's a refinement. It's it, it's interesting. I'm not sure what to, or what the point is. The torque arm on the on the rear brake I thought was much much more interesting. It's also something really old. I remember seeing. I think I mean I had some bikes in the 1980s which had one of those. So um, yeah, it's um, uh, the aim is to, uh, co to to control the position of the rear wheel under braking to actually try and drive the rear rear wheel into the ground a little bit or keep the rear down uh, uh, a little bit so you've got a little bit more weight on it um uh, that was so it can contribute to uh, to to engine braking uh, i suspect this is coming back because you know it's about tire management Gigi Delunia cares about two things he cares about horsepower and he cares about tire management uh, those are his main uh, his main aims so you have to suspect that uh, this uh, this torque rear torque arm thing has to do with uh, has something to do with the way that they can you know Im improve engine braking improve corner entry and, and also maintain the rear tire a little bit a lot of Delunia bikes whether it was at Aprilia or now at Ducati is a lot of riders have said that whenever the rear wheel comes off the ground when it may makes contact again it can be very random how it actually interacts with the track surface and then the grip levels that you get from that the how the bike feels on the corner entry so maybe as david said just that torque arm might do a better job just to be able to stabilize that connection once it comes back down because maybe the wheel won't go up quite as high in different elements like that yeah, I mean that was that was the one thing that um, uh, I think either Petruccio or Jack Miller, I forget, but one of the two, one of the two uh, uh, Ducati riders said um, it, it made the bike a little bit more stable on the braking. Um, that was the that, that was the, the the big advance. It was also interesting to me certainly that Andrea Dovizioso denied using the, tour, the rear torque arm, and then Danilo Petrucci said, "Oh yeah, no, 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 Dovi tried it as well, and he didn't notice any difference." It's always interesting, Dave, during testing to see who's actually going to get caught out by what they've actually tested and <laughs> things like that. Yeah. But the other thing that you mentioned, David, as well, was the rear seat unit. And I think it could be quite an interesting one just because from talking to aerodynamicists in Formula 1, obviously, like, a lot of the aero tech that we're seeing in MotoGP now is derived from knowledge from other series because that level of aero hasn't been in bikes before. But talking to some F1 engineers, they did say a lot about just being able to tidy up rear airflow whenever there is an element at the back of a car that might just change the airflow, airflow slightly. Obviously, Ducati is the only team that's got that salad box on the rear of the bike, so maybe it's also creating some dirty air at the back that they want to try and clean up, and maybe even though there are only subtle changes to the seat unit, it might make a big difference for the air that actually comes out from the rear around that salad box, but obviously... Like anything else, whenever we're talking about uh, GG Delinea technology, we're all just taking wild stabs in the dark about uh, what they could possibly be for. Yeah, that seems like a that seems like a decent um, a decent idea. Certainly, that salad box is uh, makes for quite a large sort of chunk on the back of the uh, on the back of the rear seat. Um, it makes for quite a sort of like boxy tail, if you like. So it's going to be uh, yeah, certainly it's going to be interesting to see what uh, what difference it it makes. But like I say, the thing is, you've got to 
bloody great big rider sitting in front of it um, who is also moving around and and doing all sorts of things so to, to disrupt the airflow so uh, yeah uh, it, but as you say as you say Steve it would be interesting to actually see uh, the, the 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 details of the modeling from it but um, uh, I think a, a few seconds after we actually saw the modeling we would uh, find ourselves uh, bundled into the back of a uh, of a fiat and uh, uh, dumped into um, uh, dumped into some deep water carrying something very heavy I think <laughs> yeah don't forget the cannolis Dave <laughs> I think like the one the one thing about the um, the seat unit for the Ducati in particular is since I think the GP15 it's been such a narrow seat unit anyway that uh, maybe they're just trying to distribute that airflow slightly differently now as well because it does get to a critical point where you can get a benefit from having such a small tail unit as well so it's just all those different changes that will take some time to to get uh, the optimum solution because it is such a, a new technology in MotoGP we're pretty much used to just going into a wind tunnel and trying to be as low drag as possible. But now Delaney has obviously made over the course of the last three, four, five years since he went to Ducati, just a lot of steps in trying to bring in that aero to the bikes. Yes. So guys, I've drawn a very roughly assembled table in my notebook and that basically separates the factories that are in pretty good shape going into December and January and the ones that are in not such good shape. Now, we've spoken about Ducati. I also think that Honda and Suzuki uh, would it would be fine to put them in that category as well would that be uh would you agree with that would that be a fair assumption do you think uh i would definitely agree with that um uh what was interesting was seeing nakagami be fastest at uh Jerez. uh he was using cal crutchlow's bike basically the 2018 uh, version the fact that nakagami was so fast on that bike I think is really um, uh, it, it, it's really instructive. It, it shows that it's a much better bike than the two thir- 2017 bike it's been using all year. Much easier to ride. Um, uh, we saw Mark Marquez use um, a slight development of his current bike, and then a this black prototype, uh, which has a new engine and a. Um, uh, and uh, and a new chassis, a slightly revised chassis. That was a that was a big difference. To, um, the the thing which caught my ear was when he was talking about the fact that he'd uh, been able to use the medium tire at Valencia, for example, quite successfully. Um, as medium Honda front have struggled. Yeah, the medium front. That's right. Yeah, the medium front tire. Um, uh, Honda have struggled to uh, use. They've been forced to use the hardest possible tire because they can't. They don't. Um, they rely so much on the front of the uh, on the front of the bike to actually uh, get the bike stopped and turned that they've had to use the the you know the the the, the strongest front tire, which is usually the hard tire, and that's been uh, that's caused them problems because the hard tire has also been sort of the most difficult to warm up and it's one of the reasons you see how the Honda's crash so much because you know it's it's always right on the very limit of uh, of its grip if they can use the medium tire that tire will warm up a little bit more it'll give a little bit more grip um and if they can still use it to still break it so deeply into the corner then uh yeah it puts them in it puts them in really really good shape when you look at the week as a whole once again we saw Nakagami as you said David he might have topped the times on the final day but the most interesting thing was he was a lot of 38 through the week really consistent through the week and as you said just being able to make that big step up having taken on Crutchlow's bike for the two days so clearly 
it is a much more user-friendly bike. We saw that through the course of this year. And that's been one of the steps Honda's made year on year over the last uh, last couple of years. Yeah, now you say Nakagami's interesting. My interest, honestly, was uh, on the other side of the box to Mark Marquez because we saw Jorge Lorenzo obviously make his debut on the Honda at Valencia. Um, he was not a million miles away, but I treated that with a little bit of caution because if you look back to his first ride with Ducati at that same test at the end of 2016, I think he was roughly around about the same time off the uh, off the front or the, the leading pace. But we went to Jerez and I think around 1, 2 p.m. on the first day, testing at Jerez, Lorenzo was uh, up there and among the fastest guys on track. Um, it seems that he's adapted to this Honda pretty quickly, and I must say a lot quicker than I expected. Um, did that surprise you a little bit, Div? Uh, for me, not particularly, no. Uh, well, perhaps a little bit. The thing is, uh, the step from the Yamaha to either the Ducati or the Honda is, I, I think, the biggest step because they're so radically different. Um, uh, the Yamaha is all about smoothness, whereas you have to uh, be a, much more physical with both the Honda and the uh, and the Ducati. So the step from the Ducati to the Honda is much smaller. Uh, he adapted. I mean, you know, he was winning races, and uh, and he would have run a lot a lot more races if he hadn't fallen off. Um, uh, had that big off at um, uh, at uh, Thailand, and uh, if um, he hadn't made that mistake at Aragon. Um, so yeah, it, it was clear he was competitive. Um, he wasn't allowed to speak to us. Uh, he wasn't banned by Ducati. He was actually banned by, banned by Honda. I learned um, because um, uh, Ducati were letting him speak, but they put uh, they've got a, a massive sort of range of fines for if Lorenzo said the said the wrong thing, and Honda basically didn't trust Lorenzo not to say the wrong thing and cost Honda money. Um, so, uh, but from from all the things that I heard from from sort of you know here and there. From from people, people who had spoken to him, he said he seems to be pretty happy. He seems to be comfortable. Uh, Honda had bought a seat unit, which he basically told them, you know, I think fairly shortly after he signed, look, I'm going to need something. Uh, bring me a seat, you know, or not the seat unit, the tank unit, which he can hook his legs behind. Um, uh, bring me a t uh, bring me a tank unit, and um, uh, and that's going to make a big difference. That seemed to help. He looked really good on the bike. He looked as if he'd been copying Pedrosa's style, picking the bike up. So, um, yeah, fascinating. And Steve, you were particularly impressed with Lorenzo watching trackside at Valencia, I remember. Uh, what have you made of his first appearances on the Honda? The key thing for Lorenzo, Neil, was at the last lap of the week, he put himself up to fourth fastest, so he was clearly quite comfortable to be able to push on at the end of the test. But what was interesting was going out and watching. I went out to watch for pretty much all of the second day I think I was out and uh, the key thing with Lorenzo was at different corners he looked proper Lorenzo turn four turn eight two of the corners that are always real Jorge Lorenzo corners at Hareth he looked like he was able to just carry so much speed such a sweeping line and natural on the bike all the way through the corner at, at Valencia there were some sections where whenever he was picking the bike up he was doing it almost in stage by stage this time he was much more fluid I know David you've always compared him to the T1000 I think it was in the second Terminator film just being able to be that fluid uh, all across the bike and just basically taking yeah. on a different form on the bike and uh, as the week progressed we saw him get more and more comfortable on the bike but what was most interesting was down in towards turn 6 the heavy braking zone you're coming back from 5th gear back to 1st gear down in towards the, uh, the hairpin at the end of the back straight and he looked really aggressive on the front end he wasn't braking like you're used to seeing Lorenzo brake from a few years ago he was like he was doing on the Ducati at the end of at the end of this year. He looked 
so much more comfortable placing so much trust in that front end he was getting himself over the front of the bike and he was just really aggressive all the way down in towards the braking zone i was talking to a couple of people trackside at one point during the test i was talking to michael laverty and also Chaz davis they were both out watching and both of them said that uh, lorenzo through a couple of sections really impressed them with how quickly he's adapted to the bike but the key thing for Lorenzo is the adaptation from a Ducati to Honda is a lot easier than the Ju- than the Yamaha to the Ducati, as David said. Yes, exactly. And I guess one of the things that he continually referenced when he was adapting to the Ducati was that with the Yamaha, he never really had to use the rear brake. Or when he did, it was sort of minimal. Um, and I think Ducati has taught him to use that not only uh, entering the corner, but also during mid-corner and corner exit. And I remember there was a few years back, uh, Cal Crosso said something uh, which at first seemed difficult to believe. Honda riders were using, or he was using, the rear brake for about 70% of uh, a lap uh, at any given circuit. Um, So Lorenzo has obviously that knowledge still fresh from his days with Ducati. um, And that's, I think, pretty critical um, to to ride in a Honda as well. Um, so Honda seemed to be looking pretty good. Um, Suzuki as well, um, because Alex Rins had a fantastic end of season, um, a couple of podiums on the bounce. And then we had uh, rookie uh, sensation, I guess we could call him, Joanne Mir, who not only caught our attentions at Valencia, but also at Jerez as well. Uh, Dave, what did you make of Suzuki? The new engine, which uh, Sylvain Guintoli has been trying that has more power. Uh, Alex Rins was really pretty happy with that, said it worked well. Uh, and uh, Juan Mir was very, very close to Alex Rins right from the start. Rins seemed to be much happier also just in his role as sort of, you know, lead because he's now the lead rider. Uh, whereas that wasn't the case when he first uh, when he first got there with, uh, with Ian Oni. Um, it seems to be a much sort of happier, more sort of settled, uh, uh, a more settled team. Um, there are clear, uh, sort of clear lines. Um, and yeah, Rince looked good. He looked competitive. Uh, the bike looks good out on track. Um, the, you know, there's not an awful lot wrong with that, uh, that Suzuki, as we saw through at the end, where I think they had something like four or five, uh, or almost four or five races, uh, uh four races, yeah, four, four races in a row, uh, um, uh, on the podium. And, um, the first time since 1994. Uh, there you go there you go i mean yeah that that bike really is in uh, just it was in really good shape already i think it's probably the sweetest handling bike on the uh on the grid it's, it's the easiest to throw around the the riders don't look like they haven't put any effort into it um uh it, it it's it's probably still got one or two sort of uh, uh areas where it's going to struggle but it's going to be interesting to see rinse now in his third year um they seemed to be settled on the engine. Now they can work on the rest of the chassis for um, uh, for next year. What was also interesting was uh, on their 2018 chassis, they had an 18 chassis and a 19 chassis, and the 19 and the, and the 2018 chassis had the uh, carbon stick-on bits uh, still on it because that was what they were doing, playing with the stiffness. And the new chassis was without the carbon, so obviously they've uh, settled on um, the stiffness to use for that section of the uh, uh, for, for that section of the chassis. Um, so yeah, it was because uh, I'm looking forward to next year, especially seeing Mir because Mir adapted so quickly. Yeah, and I know Steve, you are particularly a big fan of Juan Mir and his talents, especially from his days in the Moto3 class. Uh, What were your impressions of uh, watching him? His adaptation to Moto2 probably didn't go as smoothly as I thought it was going to go. I remember being at the Jerez test last year 
for the Moto2 riders and just seeing him move from a Moto3 bike to a Moto2 bike. And a couple of riders that were there at the test early just uh, commented to me that uh, it looked like it was going to take him a bit of time to get used to a bigger bike. And it did take him a bit of time to get used to it. But obviously there was a lot of issues going on within the Mark VDS team last year as well. So that also masks some of the... Uh, some of the tougher weekends for him also coming down fat but he still had a strong rookie campaign in moto 2 made the step up onto a moto gp bike he had a couple of days testing in japan before valencia but in valencia he really surprised me he, like he looked great on the bike straight away coming through turns two three four at valencia he just looked absolutely at ease with the bike but the suzuki as david said is a very well-rounded package already and the form that they had in the second half of the year with both ian one and rins showed how good that package is Rins, um, sorry, um, Mir looks like a rider that's ready to, to step onto that bike and get good results right from the outset because at Valencia, again, he just looked so good on the bike at different points. And probably the most important thing for me is he had a big crash. He He's now been able to have that uh, moment that every rider has in MotoGP when a MotoGP bike bites you and you have a big crash. He went off a turn seven, a fast left-hander at Valencia, at uh, Jerez, which has caught out a lot of riders in the past. But he got back to the pits, he went to the medical centre, got himself checked out. Within a couple of hours he was back on the bike and within a couple of laps he went faster than he had gone already. And uh, it just showed that he's got um, he's got that uh, mental side already dialed in for a MotoGP rider. And that's important for any rider. Like I remember talking to Giannis Folger at Valencia whenever he had a crash as well at Valencia. And I asked him like, how important is it to actually have those kind of crashes? And he said, you know what, it's important after you know he's had his layoff, it was important to have a crash. But it's also important to push to see if you can find yourself closer to the limits. Mir was pushing on a different tyre. I think he was using a harder compound tyre. And uh, he just pushed a little bit too hard, had a crash. And uh, as he said afterwards, you know, you know, you hit the ground a little bit faster in MotoGP bike, but you've got to get yourself back up again and go back out again. And he actually seemed to really get stronger with every run in the second half of the test, even though his body was pretty battered after that crash. Yeah, and I think it's not just, obviously it's a, a good bike, a very sorted bike with a good chassis, but you've also got a team there that really specializes in bringing through really young riders that are a little bit raw and building them up into, well, podium finishers, maybe even race winners in the case of Maverick Vinales, podium finishers certainly in the case of Alex Rins as well. Um, and I was speaking to Davide Brivio, the team boss of Suzuki, uh, back in Australia, I think it was, before Mir had even got on the, uh, the GSXRR. And he was saying that he expects Mir to pretty much follow Alex Rins' rookie season. And if you think back to Rins' rookie year, 2017, he was scoring top six finishes regularly uh, by the end of the year. So, uh, yeah, some pretty big predictions, uh, pretty high hopes for the uh, 2017 Moto3 champion. Yeah, I mean, the one thing uh, about uh, um, Alex Rins' uh, first season is he had a couple of really big crashes in that first uh, in that first year. So he logged, basically lost that for the first half of that uh, of that year, um, and we're um, we're starting to see that. So again, it's going to be important for uh, Mir. I mean, as you say, and as Steve said, it, it, it's important that you sort of crash and then get back on again so that you understand where the limit is. Um, but it's also important that when you do crash, you don't actually, you know, break bits of you, uh, break or break yourself so much that, that you uh, lose confidence and lose uh, time on the bike. One of the key things that held Rins back in his rookie campaign, if you think back to his first test at Valencia, I think it was on the first day around lunchtime, he had a really bad crash at, uh, I think, turn 11. Yeah, turn 12. And, uh, 
there was a lot of people falling off there and it, it, it's it's a, a bad place to crash because it hurts. Do you have any injury as a rookie over the course of the winter? It really does set you back quite a lot in your rookie campaign and the easiest place to look for any example of that is on the other side of the Suzuki pit box. We saw Alex Rins have a really bad crash on his first day testing a MotoGP bike at Valencia and it ended up putting him on the back foot for pretty much the opening half of his rookie campaign and it took him a long time to really find his feet, find his flow and as you said earlier Neil, in the course of this season he really has stepped up and uh, shown exactly what he can do so he's got a good example to look at on the other side of the box and year three for Alex Rins really is a crucial year, this is where he needs to be winning races or really competing for race wins on a regular basis because this is the year where a rider really should be able to show exactly what he can do in the top class. Yeah, and that's what Alex was saying at the end of the uh, rest test. The principal aim for 2019 is to get that first win as soon as possible. And then he might uh, try and manage expectations from there. But judging by his performances um, recently, uh, I really would say that that is only a matter of time uh, before Alex gets uh, his first win in MotoGP. Now, we have spoken uh, about the guys that we think are in pretty good shape, but uh, KTM and Aprilia, uh, two uh, strugglers, I guess, in 2018, uh, their fortunes weren't exactly reversed at the two tests at Valencia and Jerez. Um, now, looking at uh, KTM first, because they've obviously got Johan Zarco joining Paul Espargaro. They also have Tectoa, uh, their new satellite team, with uh, its 2019 lineup of uh, Hafi Siren and Miguel Oliveira. Um, yes, it seemed that uh, Zarco was a little bit taken aback um, by the RC16 and uh, what it sort of demands uh, from its rider. The KTM is much more like the Honda than it is like uh, any other MotoGP bike. It's a very physical bike. That's one of the reasons that Paul Espargaro loves it, because he likes to be able to bully a bike around a track. Um, uh, Zarco uh, was much more like uh, Lorenzo, who's trying to be smooth, um, uh, and he was really, really smooth on the Yamaha. So I think he got a bit of a culture shock when he jumped off um, and onto the KTM. Uh, the downside to the KTM is also, uh, well, what all of the riders were saying, corner entry was a big deal. It, it was They were really struggling with corner entry. Um so that that took away one of um, uh, one of Zarco's weapons, as it were. So it, it, he was having a problem. But I mean, it seems to me that KTM's biggest problem is that they uh, they have an almost infinite supply of new parts to keep throwing at the bike. So they keep testing all the stuff without air, really ever understanding what the hell it is they've actually got. Um, so they've got all this data which they're collecting and they never seem to actually sit down and sort of like sift through it all and think, right, this is um, this is going to work and this is going to work. Let's see what's the maximum we can extract from this package. Yeah, and one of the most interesting debriefs that we had over the course of the week, David, and we'll put it up on the Patreon page as well at some point over the next week, but was Paula Spagaro talking about just that after the first day of testing? We asked him, like, what list did you have to work through? And he just said he had a list as big as his arm. And tomorrow there's even more stuff to test. KTM, obviously, after Mika Calio got injured, they lost out in having a test rider. Bradley Smith talked about that as well. He said that uh, the one reason that he now really understands the importance of a test rider role is KTM lost their test rider and they lost the rider that was going to do all the donkey work. And uh, basically, he now understands that a test rider has to test seven different things and maybe one of them can be taken to a race rider. But at KTM, because they didn't have that test rider, Paul Espagaro got seven different things to test during the course of this test at any given time. And it really was a case of just more and more 
workload being put on the riders. Obviously, Johan Zarco is trying to get used to the bike. So all of the load really falls onto Espagaro. So he had a lot to test and basically too much. He'd, he, he couldn't get a consistent feel with it. He wasn't able to really see what made the big steps forward because when you've got that much, it really is a case of trying to separate the wood from the trees. And uh, he was really struggling with that. Zarco, on the other hand, was really struggling with the bike in general. Whenever we asked him, like, what's positive about this bike? All he'd say was the engine's quite strong, but everything else seemed to be a big issue for him. And that adaptation from a Yamaha, we talked about it with Lorenzo going from the Yamaha to the Ducati, how difficult it was. Zarco's going to have pretty much the exact same problem going to the KTM. Yeah, I guess the one thing that was in Zarco's favour was he was consistent by the second day of Jerez. We were watching him do some laps at the end of uh, the afternoon on day two. I think he was the only rider out on track and you had your live timing app uh, up and working on your telephone div. And uh, we could see that Zarco was pretty much hitting uh, within 2.2.3 of his fastest times uh, consistently. And he was on, I don't know how many laps uh, in that were in that particular run, but he looked consistent, just not quite fast enough. And just to go back to what you were saying, Steve, about pole. Yeah, basically what they were testing um, at Valencia and at Jerez, it's like a back catalogue of parts from, I guess, the summer break, really, because Calio got injured before then. Paul had a pretty nasty injury at uh, Bruneau, the first round of the second half of the year, which put him out. The factory didn't want to give new stuff to Bradley Smith because he was leaving to go to Aprilia. So, essentially, there was the second half of 2007, sorry, 2018 to get through before they can get on to the, the 2019 stuff. And, um, well, yeah, uh, a lot of work certainly still ahead for uh, for KTM. Speaking of Bradley Smith, he is uh, one of the new additions to Aprilia, uh, along with Andrea Iannone. Um, what were your impressions of uh, of those guys, uh, Steve? Um, well, like KTM, Aprilia obviously have a pretty big mountain to climb right now as well. And talking to Smith, one of the key things he said was just uh, he wanted to try and get an, an understanding of what the bike could do. Obviously, with Andrea Iannone joining the team and also Alessia Spagro being there, there's two established riders in the MotoGP class and Iannone, he had a couple of crashes during the course of this test. He had a couple of crashes at Valencia as well. So he's clearly trying to find that limit of the bike. But uh, for Iannone, it's definitely going to be an adaptation to the Aprilia. Tough times ahead for KTM, uh, but Aprilia also seemed to be uh, struggling just to find exactly uh, the direction and, and what exactly it needs uh, going into 2019. Dave, what were your thoughts on uh, Andrea Iannone? Bradley Smith moving there obviously as a test rider and then uh, Alicia Spargaro who was battling uh, sickness at Jerez. Yeah, I think losing uh, Espargaro at the uh, Jerez test was a big blow to them because, you know, obviously stability. Um, they had um, uh, Andre Iannone who's on the bike for, uh, at that point, the second time. Uh, they've got Bradley Smith who's on the bike for the second time. They've got Ma- Matteo Bayocco who is a, a, a nice lad but not really fast enough. Iannone was saying that he was really strong struggling with uh, with again with the front end with corner entry on that bike Aprilia got lost in 2018. They went one direction with the chassis, um, uh, which just didn't really work at all for them. And then they tried to come back to uh, to the 2017 chassis. Um, uh, they were working on an engine. They had a new engine, which was a little bit better. But um, uh, from all I've heard about the uh, Aprilia power delivery, it's very, very two-stroke. It's very, very uh, aggressive. You know, the power comes in very aggressive. And there's not much off the bottom, and that was one uh, one thing which they 
they've tried to improve a little bit. Uh, but there were big changes off the uh, uh, off the track as well. Um, uh, Romano Albasiano, uh, who is uh, both the head of the racing team and the head of Aprilia Corsa, who's actually ch- you know charged with the development, um, he is uh, th- that job is going to be split up. They have got um, uh, uh, Albasiano will be concentrating on. Uh, on the racing side, on the bike development side, whereas the racing team, uh, they've brought someone in from uh, Formula One. And I think, Steve, you know much more about Formula One than me. I, you know, I can barely remember the number of wheels on the on the vehicles. But so tell me, so tell me some more about that. Well, there's five wheels, David. And uh, <laughs> the big thing, David, is that Massimo Rivola has been brought in from Ferrari's youth development driver program. And he. He has actually had experience running race teams in F1 in the past. Think of Toro Rosso. He was there for a while running their team. And the big thing is that he takes a lot of the pressure off Romano because speaking to him in Valencia at the team manager's press conference, I was chatting to him afterwards just about superbikes and, uh, you know, the, the programs that Aprilia have in place. And, uh, one of the key things he said was he wants to be able to spend more time as an engineer. He understands that he doesn't know how to organize quite as well as what Aprilia need or what a leading MotoGP factory need. And if he's able to spend more time on the design of the bikes and uh, work as an engineer, he feels that he can be a lot more valuable to the manufacturer rather than taking on all the roles. And that's where bringing in Revola could make a big difference for Aprilia because it takes some of the pressure off Romano because it's been pretty clear that uh, Romano hasn't been up to the job of doing both roles. But uh, obviously as one of Gigi Delinia's former engineers, he was able to show what he could do previously as an engineer. Maybe if he's allowed to have that responsibility once again, he can make some big steps forward for Aprilia. The big question is going to be whether or not Revola can actually adapt to the MotoGP paddock because we've seen a host of people come from Formula 1 to MotoGP and not very many of them have stuck around. Yeah, what I found strange, if you like, is the fact that they've already got a very experienced MotoGP team manager in Fausto Grassini, who actually owns the team. Um, uh, clearly, they have decided that uh, they don't want to let Grassini run the team because, you know, Grassini is Grassini. Fausto Grassini is Fausto Grassini. Um, he's not an Aprilia man. He is Fausto Grassini. Um, uh, so they obviously want someone on the Aprilia payroll to uh, to oversee that whole operation. I mean, but to me, like Rivola the best thing that Rivola could do is just let Grassini sort of manage the team because he's so experienced at it. Yeah, that divide's always been one of the big talking points about Aprilia, though, ever since they came together. And it really has been shown over the course of the last few years that Grassini's there pretty much just to be a figurehead. He's there so that they've got a, a place on the grid. And uh, Aprilia certainly are running the show. And then Grassini gets on with running his Moto3 and Moto2 teams. Which raises the question, like how much better could um, uh, could that could Aprilia be if they'd actually come in as Aprilia rather than uh, coming in with Grassini? I think um, uh, there is a question there because, uh, you know, it's been obvious from the start. Um, they had uh, Sam Lowe's because Grassini loved Sam Lowe's. And in fact, Sam Lowe's was back with the Grassini team and he was absolutely loving it in Moto2, which we will talk about later on. But um, uh, he wasn't at all happy in, um, uh, in the MotoGP team. Grassini, uh, Aprilia hated the idea that um, Grassini had signed Sam Lowe's and they were stuck with this rider. They wanted their own riders. Um, uh, it's, a, it's, it's a strange sort of split in operation there, which uh, you have to say it doesn't look like it's worked particularly well. 
Okay, nice one, guys. So uh, I think that pretty much covers uh, MotoGP. Um, certainly the uh, the six factories present um, at both Valencia and Jerez. Uh, we're going to move on now to uh, to Waterbikes because they were there for their own two-day showdown um, at Jerez just before the MotoGP bikes were on track. And, uh, well, I think uh, all attention was uh, on Ducati. Uh, Steve English, uh, you are full-time World Superbike commentator, so I'll go to you first. Uh, what were your first impressions of the new uh, Panigale V4? Uh, the first impression is that it looks like a complete weapon, to be honest. And uh, talking to the Ducati riders, it was pretty clear that it is a step forward, but that it's also very early in the development process of the bike. And uh, talking to Chaz Davis in particular, he was making clear that uh, there's a lot of changes that need to be made to this bike to get it ready for Phillip Island. But overall, really positive about the new bike, the direction it can take, and also the fact that it's such a, a new project as well. And that's one of the key things for Ducati, because the Panigale, for all of the wins that Davis had with it over the course of the last few years for being a title contender, it was a flawed bike from the start. You could see that from when it was introduced. It took so long to win a race. It took so long to get uh, Ducati's heads around the bike that uh, clearly there were issues from its conception. What was most interesting for me was when we sat down to talk to Gigi Delinia about it, he was making clear that really in the current guise of World SBK with the technical regulations they have, you have no choice but to run a four-cylinder bike. And Ducati, they went against the grain for the last few years with the end of the Panigale, but uh, clearly having to come to the V4 fold uh, for this year. And that's really just uh, what, sh what sets them up on the early stages of a very, very strong potential with this bike. And I definitely wouldn't be surprised if Davis is quick from the start of the season and also Bautista he seemed to adapt quite well to World Superbike he was fast from the outset he's got a lot of riding changes to make though because talking to some of the track spotters that are out trackside because Superbike uses a lot of different people for for spotting purposes you've got Fabian Ferre with uh, Jonathan Ray you've got Michael Laverty's going to be with Chaz Davis this year uh, the Yamaha team usually have someone there as well I think over the course of the last few years Troy Corsers tried to be involved in that the, and also Alex Lowe's has had Jason Friedmore so it is a role that's used quite extensively within World SBK and talking to some of the spotters that were out to have a look at the Ducati they did say that uh, Bautista was able to carry an awful lot of corner speed through the corners but that may not work as the tyre starts to wear so how he adapts for what he sees as being quite a slow bike compared to a MotoGP bike, he said it was like riding a 250, whereas when Josh Brooks got onto it, he said he felt like it was riding a MotoGP bike. So it really is a case of for different strokes for different folks. And Bautista is going to have to adapt to how to get the most out of that bike for 20 laps rather than three or four laps whenever he's got a, a brand new Pirelli tyre and a fresh tyre with a lot of grip. So it's going to be interesting to see over the course of the January tests in Jerez, Portimao, and then also just before the race weekend in Phillip Island, how he can adapt his riding style to be ready for a full race distance. But he certainly looks very comfortable on the bike straight away. Would you say it's a bike that uh, can win straight off, straight from the off next year, Dave, from what you saw? Uh, from what I saw, yeah. I mean, the potential of the bike was the was demonstrated by the fact that the Ducati's test rider, uh, Alessandro Valia, who obviously has a lot of laps on the bike, uh, was basically doing 144s on a bog-stranded street-legal bike. I mean, it's a very, very special street-legal bike, but it had lights on and everything and a number plate holder. Um, which was uh, about, you know, basically five seconds off of uh, Johnny Ray's, um, uh, Jonathan Ray's fastest time. 
um, which shows that this thing is competitive. Uh, they made a lot of uh, they made a lot of progress. Um, so yeah, I think uh, I think the Ducati is going to be uh, is going to be pretty quick. Um, to me, as Steve said, Bautista seemed to adapt quite quickly. Um, to me, the biggest thing was that that you know the Kawasaki is still well, well, not the Kawasaki. Jonathan Ray was fastest, clearly fastest, easily fastest. Um, uh, he gets, I think, he gets all of his revs back for the start of the season. Uh, so he's going to be, uh, yeah, he's he's going to be a real threat. He's going to be a real threat. Yeah, one of the key things talking to both Kawasaki riders as well was that uh, Jonathan clearly seems very comfortable and confident on the bike. But what was most interesting talking to Jonathan was that. He kept trying to deflect for next year. He was talking about Ducati's got a brand new bike. The Yamahas are looking strong. And he was naming pretty much every rider that was at the test as being a potential threat. Whereas everyone else is looking at it thinking like, oh, no, John, Johnny's just still got that speed. Kawasaki's still got that edge. And uh, it's all about trying to just find a way to stop them next year. And he was being pretty clear just about uh, the fact that he wanted to put some of the attention on some other teams. Obviously, Ducati's got a brand new bike. It's going to be fast. It's going to win races. It's going to be a contender right from the start of the year. But I found it interesting that he was bringing up the Yamahas as well because when we went down to talk to the Yamaha riders, particularly on the first day with Alex Lowe's, he was being very certain that uh, you know there was a lot of work to be done for Yamaha. He didn't, uh, he didn't pull his punches with us, David. He was talking in terms about, you know, a new fairing's not going to suddenly make us find half a second to challenge the Kawasaki's. We need to make drastic changes to the bike yeah i mean he was he was talking about i think the the bike being what half a second off or something and then you know the next day we went down and says all right we're only four tenths off um uh the impression i got from speaking to several people at yamaha was um they were extremely annoyed by the fact that uh, you know ducati have got a brand new bike um a radical new bike and it's you know just basically built to win the world superbike championship uh kawasaki bought a uh, or have revised their bike to make it more competitive and their the yamaha is the, the the same bike that they've had for the past few years um also they've lost their electronics um specialist michaela gado who's gone to uh, to mark gp um so they feel they're a little bit on the back foot and they really need uh, some big changes to be competitive. Yeah, and one of the big things for Yamaha is, as you said, Gad has moved full-time to MotoGP next year. They've actually brought in Alberto Colombo, who had been Chaz Davis's crew chief. He's going to now be overseeing the Yamaha operation and superbikes as well. He's going to be working just probably, at, I'd imagine, in the power archy or the hierarchy for Yamaha. He'll be underneath Andrea De Sali, reporting to him, working across both of the Yamaha teams. But uh, Yamaha obviously have a new team for next year, the GRT squad moving up from Supersport. So suddenly with Sandro Cortesi and Marco Melandri there, there's four riders that have to be supported by Yamaha for next year. And that's going to place a lot of strain on resources. We didn't see an awful lot of new faces down in Yamaha. We saw a lot of people in Yamaha shirts working across both garages. So how's that going to work over a race weekend and different, different challenges that are going to come up. So it really is going to be a case of in Phillip Island and those early races of the year, we're going to see just where Yamaha's resources are. But talking to Lowe's, he was pretty clear that, uh, you know, Yamaha's struggle in MotoGP, that's where their resources have to go. So he's quite realistic about that. But it's fine to be realistic in November. It's another thing once you're actually in the races and you're under pressure next year because it's going to be a new BMW with the SMR squad that uh, still has to show up. We also have 
two other V4s on the grid from Ducati with Barney running Michael Rubin Rinaldi and also Eugene Laverty having been confirmed at Go 11 on the Ducati next year. So it's going to get harder and harder. And as you said, David, with basically a bespoke bike coming in for the World Superbike Championship from Ducati, a strong Kawasaki, a new BMW, uh, Yamaha with the oldest bike on the grid, it gets harder and harder to compete at the front. Well, not quite the oldest. There's still the Honda Fireblade there, which is um, HRC-backed and uh, run by Mor- uh, Moriwaki now, but um, uh, still, it's still. I, I think I did the uh, looks at the horsepower, and uh, there's something like 20 or 25 horsepower down on the uh, on the Ducati, so they're not really going to cause a... Uh, uh, they're not going to trouble the front runners very much, other than um, perhaps as they find themselves being lapped. But um, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's. I think Yamaha are in a bit of a difficult situation, a difficult place with um, uh, just not having the resources. There's a, a there's a big squeeze on on the resources, and uh, and the bike is pretty much the same as it has been for a while. Yeah, and the one key thing to remember about Yamaha is. They are just off the back of their best season in a long time in World SBK, probably since they, well, definitely since they returned to the championship in 2016. Both riders won races, they had a lot of podiums as well over the course of the season. So Yamaha is not that far off and uh, for most of the second half of last year, they were there, thereabouts. But it gets harder and harder to stay there and thereabouts if other manufacturers are making a bigger jump forward. And that's going to be the key thing for Yamaha over the course of this winter and the start of next year. A few heads were turned when Kawasaki announced that Leon Haslam would be joining Jonathan Ray for 2019 in the Kawasaki squad. Uh, could we see something interesting from the reigning British Superbike champion? Could he be another name that will add to potential race winners? Yeah, I think that Haslam's going to be in a position to win races next year, probably as early as Phillip Island. That's one of his favourite tracks on the calendar. He'll be keen to really lay down a marker to Jonathan Ray and uh, try and start the season strong. But it was interesting talking to him over the course of these two days. Obviously, he had uh, a day or two testing in Aragon as well, working on the electronics. But he was saying that he's having to adapt his riding style quite considerably to the World SBK machine with the full electronics for next year. He's had to try and use settings that are similar to Jonathan Ray's to try and get the most from the bike. He doesn't have any real feeling from the electronics right now and it's just going to be a a pretty big adaptation for him over the course of the rest of the winter to try and get himself up to speed. But with Marcel Dwinker as his crew chief, you'd imagine that they'll be able to find a way in the next, I think there's probably six days of testing before the start of the season. So he's six days to really find that feeling that he needs from the bike and then try and uh, get himself ready for the start of the year. Okay, so interesting times ahead for World Superbike in 2019. Also, extremely interesting times ahead for Moto2 because we're essentially entering into a new era. Gone are the stock 600cc CBR600 engines that we've been using since 2010 in the class. We now have uh, Triumph's uh, 765 triple and uh, we had the first official run out with uh, pretty much all the field, I think, bar two of uh, the 2019 grid. Uh, down at Hareth for two days. Um, some interesting times there. Luca Marini, one-time GP winner uh, in 2018, uh, led the way. And uh, it looked like they're already uh, pretty much up and on the pace, Dave. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, it was it was certainly an interesting test. It was interesting to, for a number of reasons. First of all, um, the the new engine. The new engine sounds 
different. Although, I mean, one of the complaints we always had about the uh, uh, about the Honda powered bikes was when you had all of them going around, it was a, um, a fairly monotonous noise. I have to say the, the 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 Triumph sounds absolutely glorious, but then when you've got sort of thirty going around all at the same time, it still sounds a little bit monotonous because they're all making the same noise. Um, uh, but it still better than the better than the Honda. The the, the the bikes need a very different riding style. Um, you don't carry so much corner speed. You do get to brake a little bit deeper and stand the uh, stand the thing up a, a, a lot more than the, the uh, than the Hondas. Um, what struck me certainly was that the uh, uh, Calix are in really good shape and KTM are in, in really really terrible shape because you know we saw uh, Brad Binder who was very strong uh, especially at the end of uh, of last year. Uh, I think he was twelfth or thirteenth by the end of the uh, uh, by the end of the test, uh, which is not good at all. Um, the top nine, ten uh, places were all uh, Katie were all Calixes rather. Yeah, bar uh, one spoke- speed up. I think Jorge Navarro was in the top ten, but. Yeah, pretty much a, a Calix whitewash. Yeah, it was. It was pretty. It was pretty much a a, a Calix whitewash. We uh, also saw Jorge Martin. Um, uh, what they said about the about the KTM's was that they had terrible chatter at the front end. We saw uh, we saw Jorge Martin crash the KTM um, high side off. Uh, they say that 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 crash was uh, as a result of there was he had lots of chatter going through turn two and then just got flicked off the bike. Um, uh, fell un, uh, yeah, fell badly. Uh, broke his arm. Broke his, uh, uh, broke his. I think his ankle. Um, a really bad start for the Moto Three champion. Um, so yeah, it, it looks like KTM are in trouble. It looks like Calix really uh, in really good, uh, really good shape. I spoke to Alex ba- Baumgertel, the um, uh, uh, chief designer for for Calix, and he was really really happy at the end of the day. We've got the new electronics as well. That's a that's a difference. Um, uh, the bikes look like a bit more of a handful as well. Sort of you know watching outside. Certainly coming out for the the last corner at Jerez, uh, the riders were having to get over the front more because the the, the bike wanted to wheelie a lot more than the than the Honda did. So uh, it's I think it's going to be a very entertaining class to to, to watch uh, uh, next year. But I think it's I think it's difficult to sort of you know start picking favourites for um, uh, for the title next year. Uh, Steve, you you went out and watched the bike a fair bit, uh, bikes a fair bit, didn't you? The key things, as you said, David, was if you had any fillings, the KTM was just going to rattle them out of you. <laughs> because talking to Binder and uh, a couple of the other riders on that bike, they all said the same thing that there's a lot of work to be done for KTM to really get that bike ready for uh, the start of next season. But KTM are always in a position to be able to make pretty drastic changes. When we talked to Alex from Calix, he did talk about the fact that uh, Calix won't be making changes unless pretty much everyone requests the same thing. They feel that they've done their hard work now at the moment and have been able to find a pretty good solution with the bike. And uh, talking to most of the Calix riders, they all did talk about just how, how good that chassis felt with the Triumph engine. They've clearly done their homework, they've done their numbers, and they've come out with a pretty solid opening gambit and uh, that's going to be one of the key things for the Calix teams because they can start with a pretty stable base right from the outset. Obviously with the electronics there's a lot of work to be done for each of the teams. Most of the riders saying that the electronics don't really make that big of a difference with this bike just because there's not really enough power where you know the electronics play a key role but they do play a role in managing the tyre and trying to adapt through the course of the race. It's going to be interesting to see who makes the quick adjustments with their strategies 
and who's able to get the most from the Magneti electronics on those machines. Talking to the riders, they all said the same thing. The bike's a lot more fun. Every single rider says that uh, it's a lot easier to ride. It suits their style more. It's almost as if every rider believes that they need to have more power to get the most from themselves. And it works. Um, because for pretty much every rider in Moto2, they've all said, after working with the Honda engine for so long, it's nice to have a change. It's nice to have to change your style. Sam Lowe's was quite uh, adamant about the changes that have happened with the class, that uh, suddenly the riding style changes considerably because there's a variety of ways that you can attack a corner now. With the Honda engine, there was one way, and there was only one way to be fast. If you couldn't do that, you weren't able to set the lap times. Now you can try a lot of different things, a lot of different lines, and it should lead to more overtaking opportunities during a race as well. Yes, that should be interesting indeed. And speaking to Sam Lowe's through 2018, he was saying, you know, if you go back to 2010, even then the CBR 600 engine was coming towards the end of uh, its time of being, you know, really competitive, powerful. So, yeah, welcome uh, change, I think, to have uh, the Triumphs in there. Um, interesting what you guys were saying about KTM. I mean, for the life of me, I just uh, really taken aback at, uh, at how how much they're off the pace because I mean they've got a real staple of uh, of good riders they've got Binder obviously who should start as a championship favourite and then you've got the the two guys that were vying for the Moto3 crown both on their books with uh, Martin and uh, and Bezeki. obviously Jake Dixon is another uh, exciting rookie that's uh, you know won races in BSB um, and uh, yeah to see them also far off the pace was uh, was really quite something but uh, yes I just was uh, watching an interview with Brad Binder that he did and he said there's two positives one is the KTM know exactly what's wrong with the bike. And number two is that we're only in November. <laughs> so uh, speaking to uh, speaking to some colleagues of mine uh, that work for work for Dorna that were also down covering the Moto2 test, Binder, I think, came into the box and really, uh, I think, tore the head off a few of the, uh, the KTM engineers saying that we need something drastically different. Yeah, uh, to me, it looked like they tried to make a really radical change. Uh, you also saw on the front uh, a massive, massive um, uh, inlet for the air intake. They've decided they're going to do all sorts of uh, sort of fancy things. I think they've just got, got caught out by their own cleverness. I asked uh, uh, Alex Baumgartel from Calix about uh, about this thing, and he says, you know, what they want to do, eat babies. This massive air inlet. He says the air speeds in the, in the air box are are exactly the same as they were for the uh, for the CBR 600. Uh, you've got a, an engine which revs lower, so um, there's no real need to uh, to have this much bigger airbox. It looks like they try went for this. It looks like they decided they needed a much stiffer um, uh, a, a much stiffer sort of uh, headstock because they thought there's going to be a lot more uh, either a lot more weight or a lot more braking. They've just got it wrong. Um, uh, they will probably go away, throw away their old chassis, uh, go back to something much similar, more similar to their Honda chassis, and then uh, and then see what they can go from there. I expect the next test to see a very very different uh, Moto Two bike. That's the key thing with KTM is that they'll have no fear in just throwing money at the problem and trying to find the solution, even if it means rolling back to a previous solution like what they tested at Aragon before. Obviously, they've had I think Cardelus Simon testing pretty extensively on the bike over the course of the summer. We also had at the Aragon test, the likes of Binder got a taste on the bike as well. So they do have something that they can roll back to and use as a new starting point, but it's going to be interesting to see exactly how they do it. And uh, obviously as well for next year, a lot of these riders, they've now got two months off before the next time they test the bike, two months basically to think about how they need to 
make a step forward with the bike and their teams as well. So there's plenty of time still before the start of the new season, plenty of time for KTM to find the solution, but obviously the clock starts to tick on that as well. Yeah, and I reckon uh, Triumph are going to send, uh, are going to be able to sell at least 30 um, uh, of those 765s um, uh, to people um, as they uh, hoon around various tracks in Spain uh, trying to get uh, uh, trying to get used to the feel of the bike uh, ready for ready for next season. Yes, so a new era in Moto2 for 2019. Obviously, a new era for, I guess, motorcycle racing in, as a whole with uh, the advent of the Moto E Championship. It's going to be run over five rounds in 2019. I think six races. We're going to have one double header uh, when the, the championship finishes at Misano. Got a pretty tasty lineup, it has to be said, for a season that is in its first year. Uh, we've got ex uh, MotoGP stars uh, from the likes of Bradley Smith, Sete Gibernau. We've got guys that have uh, won championships in world endurance. Um, and uh, we've got a pretty impressive uh, product uh, with the uh, the Energica uh, Corsa bike that uh, will be the spec machine for 2019. Did I say that right, Div? Uh, I think you did say it right. Yes, yes. The uh, uh, I'm. I saw the brow. Bit... I saw the bra getting furrowed. So I thought. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I assumed that I, I'd done something wrong. But uh, no, what are we bikes all on track? Um, the race bikes were all on track at Hareth. Um What were your impressions of them? I mean, for for me, they, they looked like a race bike. They actually they looked really good out there. It was. Um, I like the sound of them because um, I'm a bit weird like that. It's, it's like watching Star Wars. Um, um, it's like watching a bunch of being strafed by a bunch of TIE fighters when they come past, which is fun. Um, oh, there were some really odd things, like the fact I was standing out at, at uh, what was it, turn nine, uh, turn nine and ten, and um, uh, they were coming through there, and uh, you could all of a sudden you'd hear, and. I realised, oh yeah, no, they're going over the rumble strips, they're going over the kerbs. That's a noise which you never normally hear because it's masked by a very loud engine. But you could actually hear the the, the sound of these bikes. You get you get a very different sort of sense of um, uh, or, or a different sense. You get a different. It's like a different feeling for uh, for riding. You get you get sort of a, a different understanding of what's actually going on. Um, but the bikes look good. I don't think we can say anything much about the riders. It's far far too early um they were having a lot of problems with uh overheating uh, heat management was turning into uh, uh, turning into uh, an issue um there were uh, i think there were basically any fan available uh, within a 50 mile radius of uh, Jerez was being uh, brought in to uh, try and cool down the batteries because the batteries were, were heating. So there was a lot to do. Um, yeah, it was uh, uh, it was an interesting it was an interesting start. Uh, so Steve, um, your thoughts on Model E? Well, as Dave said, the sound of the bikes is quite interesting. It's it's always interesting to hear some of the sounds of a bike. And uh, as David said, running across curves or riders just uh, grinding a peg or just getting their knee down. You hear a lot more with the Moto E bikes. Obviously, at a Grand Prix, you're probably not going to hear most of that because it'll be drowned out by the crowd. But it was interesting for us at the test to be able to hear it. As Dave said as well, it looks like a, it looks like a racing bike. And that's uh, one of the key things for it. But it only looks like a racing bike when the fairings are on. When the fairings are off, it looks like the riders are sitting on a giant fridge. But uh, there's obviously, you know, a lot of batteries and a lot of weight on the bikes. But it's very easy for the riders to adapt to it. I think it weighs something like 260, 270 kilos. But the riders are able to throw it from one side to the other and really use the, the bike like a normal machine. And that's one of the key things. Talking to each of the riders, they were all really positive 
about the championship as well and being involved in Moto E. Bradley Smith made it pretty clear whenever he said after the first day, he said that uh, basically every rider that signed up for this championship wants to be here and they also now know the the value of being there and why it was quite good to actually get themselves signed up pretty early. It's one of the few championships in the world where every rider is being paid as well. So there's not too many series like that. Dorna have done a really good job of being able to keep a cap on all of the costs. I think they pretty much pay for all of the bikes, all the travel, all the tires, and it's up to the teams to fund a rider and also the crew around them. So there's a lot of steps that have been taken to try and make this a successful series. And it's going to be really interesting to see just how it works over the course of the season. Yeah, one of the things I found most interesting was um, the sign of how seriously the teams are taking was uh, Lucio Cecchinello was there because the LCR have a uh, have a team in Moto E and uh, they were having some very, very intense uh, debriefs after each session. Um, this is, I mean, you, yeah, they're, they're taking this deadly serious uh i uh i don't think you know it it people were a bit of afraid that it was going to be a bit of a joke series i don't think it is i think it's going to be a deadly series i think it's going to be fairly exciting and very fairly interesting as well yeah there's a world championship to be won at the end of it and uh, every team wants that opportunity and every rider wants the chance to make history as well so that's going to be an interesting thing for each of the the riders and the teams in the class and I think uh, for sure, whenever we look back on this year, it's going to be one where we see a lot of changes through the course of the season. The riders are only going to test at Hareth. So by the time we get to the first round, they'll know Hareth like the back of their hand. <laughs> but by the time we get to the second round, they're going to get a rude awakening whenever they get to Le Mans and turn one at Le Mans because it's totally different than anything that they've faced. So who's able to adapt the bike as quickly as possible to a new circuit is going to be quite interesting because track time is going to be very limited. And I'll put both of you guys on the spot here and now. Is it going to be fun to watch? Do you think that we're going to see really close competitive racing? Because obviously it's a single bike series. Um, there's a little bit of uh, variation in terms of, uh, well, I would say talent on the grid. Um, and you look at the timesheets from the Hareth test. Now, obviously, they're not a completely fair indicator because it was just the first run out, essentially a bit of a shakedown. Um, but are we going to see really good, close competitive racing at the front of Moto E? Yeah, 100% we're going to see close racing in it, Neil. As far as I'm concerned, it's going to be actually very similar to what we see in the Super Sport 300 class in the World SBK paddock because the lap times are going to be very similar to that. And, and for all these riders, it's a bike that they can get close to the limit with pretty early. I think everyone said that they did one exit to try and understand the bike. And instead of then working on testing reliability or anything like that, they were already trying to make changes to the bike. There's very limited setting changes you can make to it. I think you can change spring rates and different things like that. But there's not really drastic changes that you can make to the bike. Because the key thing is, with such limited track time, they want to be able to make sure that everyone's able to get as much running as possible. So you can't make big changes to it. But the speed already, it's pretty much at a 300 pace. So all these riders are more than capable of getting close to each other around each track. Obviously, these bikes make their lap times quite differently compared to something like a Moto3 bike or a Supersport 300 bike. It can do 260, 270 kilometers an hour, but everyone should be relatively on the pace of one another. Obviously, at some races, someone's going to get a jump, maybe at... Le Mans, as I said, if you're able to get uh, adapted to the bike at a new circuit a bit quicker, it's going to be giving you that opportunity to make a breakaway. But at Hareth in particular, where the riders are going to have nine days of testing beforehand and the day of practice, I think we're going to see a leading group of a lot of bikes in that race. Yeah, I mean, the the interesting 
thing aspect of this was that people were talking about battery management. It was about when you made your lap time, whether you're going to make your lap time sort of early on or towards the end because uh, you're sort of managing the heat in the battery. Uh, and you did that by either pushing early or pushing late. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, all, they're all going to be close together. And I think that uh, there's going to be a, a little bit of strategy. And it's only 10 laps. How much gap can you make in 10 laps? Yeah, and one of the key things about the bikes that we saw during the test, as David said, was that heat build-up and managing that. And uh, we saw a lot of teams with loads of different uh, fans and cooling techniques for the bikes. But when we get to the races, we won't have a problem with that. Everyone's going to have the same spec of fans to cool the bikes. We're also not going to have the same problem with the heat build up as quickly because all of these bikes came in and were immediately put back onto a charge and it basically meant that they didn't get a chance to cool down at all and it meant that they went back out on track the next time and they were already quite close to the limit in terms of their operating heat. If you think in terms of your phone, whenever you put your phone on a fast charge, it'll always get quite hot around the battery and that's exactly what happened to all these bikes. They were put on a fast charge while they were already hot and it just basically gave them a, a perfect storm for a heat build-up, but we shouldn't get that during the course of a Grand Prix weekend. Okay, guys, so uh, we've uh, been speaking uh, quite a lot, uh, a lot to cover, obviously, in uh, the last, uh, well, 80, 90 minutes or so uh, of this uh, Paddock Pass podcast. You may have noticed that we uh, skimmed a little bit over uh, World Superbikes and where that is exactly. We'll hopefully come back with a more uh, rounded uh, perspective of uh, World Superbikes. Also a bit of BSB because Steve, as he said at the top of this show, uh, was uh, present for uh, Paul Bird Motorsports' uh, debut with the new Ducati uh, Panigale V4. Um, So we should be coming back with one of those and also another show uh, which will basically wrap up uh, the 2018 season as a whole. Uh, So... I'd like to take this opportunity to thank my uh, guests, uh, Mr. David Emmett of Moto Matters and uh, Steve English of uh, World Superbike Commentary Fame. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Uh, will you be taking some time now to, uh, to well, take a deserved rest? Uh, very much so. And Steve? I've got another week of work ahead, but uh, once I get through next weekend, that's whenever I'm able to get a few weeks off for Christmas and the New Year. Okay, this is a new adventure that you're undertaking, Steve, over the uh, the winter months, right? Yeah, I'll be working in the Super Enduro Championship over the course of the winter as well. So there's five rounds in that championship. So it's enough to keep me busy between now and Phillip Island. The man that never stops, that is Steve English, of course. Uh, now, gentlemen, thank you very much uh, for joining us for uh, this latest, latest episode of uh, the Paddock Pass podcast. Uh, we're going to uh, turn over now to Mr. David Emmett, who's here to tell you a little bit more about the new Patreon option we have to Patreon subscribers. Uh, that's right um, we now have a Patreon at patreon.com slash paddockpasspodcast uh, what we will be doing you may have heard one or two snippets of uh, rider debriefs over the um, uh, over the past or uh, during the show uh, what we'll be doing is uploading those complete debriefs for some of the riders in the next uh, in the next few weeks uh, certainly the stuff from the full Yamaha debriefs very very interesting in the different perspectives that both um, Maverick Vinales and Valentina Rossi have. There are already a couple of other debriefs uh, uh, uploaded, um, uh, which are which are only available to Patreon uh, subscribers. So, um, uh, if you enjoy the show, uh, sign up, send us some money, uh, help us make this show better, uh, and uh, enjoy the benefits of uh, of Patreon membership. Okay, yeah. So I guess this is a, as good a time as any to remind our listeners that they can follow us on various social media platforms. Obviously, 
They can follow us on Twitter. That's at paddockpasspod. They can follow us on Facebook, which is facebook.com forward slash paddockpasspodcast. And, of course, you can find us, um, or if you do find us, in the Apple uh, podcast device or app, um, then you should leave us a review because that helps other users find our show. Uh, so that's it for this episode of the Paddock Pass Podcast. Many thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll speak to you soon. Track. It's what they're doing off the track. They're taking a lot of the pressure off Romano Albaceni. Um, Albaceni. Albaceni. Responsibilities off Romano Albaceni. Albaceni. <laughs> no, no. No, go on. Albaceni. Albessiano. That's it. Albessiano. It shouldn't be that difficult. I fucking say it the whole time. For me, one of the biggest changes that the Aprilia have made for next year is taking a lot of the responsibilities off Romano Albessiano. <laughs> 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 I'll let you just talk about that piece, Neil. And I-